A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Hello, faithful listeners. This is episode 18 in the Experiential Theology podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Ben, why are we talking about the Trinity today? Yeah, well, we've been going pretty slow over the early summer because um, we're, I guess, having too much fun doing other things on the weekends. So, uh, <laughs> but here we are again. And it seems like a couple of weeks ago, it was Trinity Sunday, according to Twitter. So, and I kind of regret us not pausing to say something about the Trinity when we had that chance. So, I think that's what we should do today is talk about the doctrine of the Trinity because it's very interesting. It's interesting in the sense that uh, it's interesting in the sense that it's difficult to to really get it right as to how important it is, also how not important it is, and it takes on an importance of its own, uh, just as we try to negotiate the importance of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's definitely a big deal. It's a big deal for Trinitarians. It's also a big deal for the Unitarians who are always trying to dunk on the Trinitarians and back and forth, right? It's a big deal. Okay, so um, I know we were talking the other day, you made this comment and I wanna read it. I wanna share with our worldwide audience here. Here we go. <laughs> you said revelation drives the Trinity while redemption drives Christology. I, I have to agree with that general assessment. Uh, why is this important to keep in mind before we begin? Yeah, if if you look at if you look at uh, the the patristic era, we're talking about the first five hundred years of Christianity, uh, following the life of Christ. There's there's a number of things going on, but the the ones that get the most attention seem to be developing the doctrine of the Trinity which comes first in a way, um, although it's more of a partial doctrine that gets developed first, and then developing the doctrine of the person of Christ, which is Christology. And in a nutshell, whenever somebody makes a proposal about the person of Christ, that this is how Jesus could be what they thought he was, uh, somebody else will shoot it down because they say, oh, well, that kind of Jesus can't actually provide us with the salvation that we have come to rely on so it the what counts as heresy in the in the person of in the doctrine of the person of christ in christology is usually uh justified on the grounds that such and such a theory doesn't do justice to the to the salvation that's understood to come through through christ a christ like that couldn't do the trick uh with the doctrine of the trinity where this debate happens first it happens before the person of christ debate which is more reconciling um, Jesus as divine and human. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is trying to reconcile Jesus and his father as both divine. That's the, that's the problem that's being had here. And it, it seems to come down to uh, such and such a theory of the, of the father and son more usually uh, would make it so we actually haven't really seen the father when we've seen the son. It's about revelation and in the book of John, the gospel of John, you have the statement that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
The disciples say, well, just show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The doctrine of the Trinity is trying to make sense of that, of that, mm -hmm. of the fact that seeing Jesus is good enough. Um, it's, it's as good as seeing the Father. How is that possible? That's what the doctrine of the Trinity yeah, is basically all about. Yeah. Great, excellent. Uh, I think it's also important to talk about how theologians split the doctrine into two uh, modes or ideas, uh, what they call the ontological trinity, which is God, God's being in God's self, which we have no access to, and then the evangelical or economic trinity, which is God at work. So we see God working in the world, we analyze God's works, and then that gives us a window into who the being of God is and how it functions. So I think that's important to just bring up, even though we're not going to make a big deal out of it. Yeah, um, this is triggering a memory. Um, it's called Rainer's Rule. Have you heard that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it the ontological trinity? The economic trinity is the ontological trinity, and the ontological trinity is the economic mm -hmm. trinity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds about right. Once again, that's an attempt to safeguard revelation, more or less. It's the idea that God has to actually be the way that God seemed to be to us through the revelation in the person of Christ. That's the whole angst behind the doctrine of the Trinity. It's like we can't have God being different than has been revealed to us. Otherwise, otherwise we're wrong, I guess. <laughs> I think that's, that's a big fear for that motivates these debates is being wrong. Um, so, so yeah, there's people like some people would say, well, why don't we just focus on what we've seen and heard? Um, but others are saying, want to say that, and, and yeah, and why don't we just remain open-minded about what God is actually like? But, but, but that's historically that's never really been an option because God actually has to be the way we've seen and heard in order for us to have a good news message. That said, we can get sidetracked onto the way God is apart from creation and sort of trying to imagine what God is or was like before creation or in an alternate reality in which there was no creation. And, and then it starts to get murky and very metaphysical and, and very speculative. Um, but the speculation is justified for many people by the fact that we need God to be the way that God has seemed to be to us. Otherwise, we don't know anything. Yes, right. exactly right. Okay, so what what do we deal with next within this broad topic? Okay, well, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? That's probably what we should talk about. Um, maybe we should start by reading the Nicene Creed. There's two Nicene Creeds, as far as I know. One was in the year 325, which is really the watershed creed and then there's another updated version in 381 and there's plenty of politics uh, between the two which i don't recall from the books i read years ago um yeah but what we'll see is that the, the first council of nicaea 325 it it really uh, draws a line in the sand for the way orthodox people will think about jesus and his father and the holy spirit is a little bit of an afterthought so let how about i read it then this is straight from Wikipedia. 
It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men, and presumably also for women, but maybe we shouldn't give them that, eh? We'll see. <laughs> who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and on the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. That's it. Um, there's more. Maybe I should read this as well. The creed kind of continues into anathemas, which is basically, uh, which is basically the ancient version of a Twitter dunk on your opponents, except it usually had a bit more tangible consequences. It says, but those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I like that. I think more versions of the creature have that at the bottom. <laughs> they don't usually show this, but... I think it makes it fun. It makes it fun. Yeah. It certainly keeps you awake if you have any doubts. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, the first part of that creed just talks about the Father who, who Christians have, um, have committed historically to believing to be this very same God and Father of Jesus Christ, the God and Father of Jesus Christ is also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Christian Orthodoxy has looked into the um, has looked into into the it, it Christianity began as a as a Jewish sect, and, mm -hmm. and Christianity began by saying the God of Christianity is the same God of of Judaism. It's the Father of there's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and this God is, is famously the creator of the world. Now, at the time, in the, in the first couple centuries of Christianity, it became popular in some circles to say creation is actually the work of a lesser being, uh, that the true God uh, delegated creation to a lesser God, and so creation is somehow a little bit less than than blessed, if you would, less than than good, uh, which is that which is what Genesis would tell us is that God created and God said that it was good. So the so this Nicene Creed it starts by saying we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of all things, visible and invisible. So it's saying nope, creation was something that went straight to the top. The creation that we live in comes from the highest and greatest being that there is, the one God, the Father Almighty, and. Anyway, it's easy to take that for granted, but when you appreciate the alternative that creation was delegated to a lesser being, it it's actually makes more makes some more sense. Yeah, I think uh, the doctrine of creation is actually really important. We take it for granted, but 
I mean, I've read a handful of books, philosophically minded with metaphysics and everything. And it's, it's really involved, especially when you throw in modern theories uh, about the origin of the universe and so forth. It's, 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 it's really interesting. Which, whether you deny creation or you accept creation, both have serious consequences for how we view the world. So it's, it's not a small thing to confess. And I'm glad we're confessing creation. I'm pro-creation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's tough because I, I, I don't know about you. I, I haven't really asked too much, but like I live in a world that is probably like 13 and a half billion years old as far as I know. <laughs> um, we have a cosmology it's here. Is that 7,000? No, it's not. It's not even close. Yeah. <laughs> we can look up into the sky and we can see the glow of the mm. Big Bang mm -hmm. glowing as a black body, black body radiation at two and uh, like 2.7 Kelvin. Um, it's we, you, we can look at the sky with a radio telescope or a microwave telescope and we can see the beginning. Uh, so, so yeah, the year maybe will change as our theories of the rate of expansion of the universe changes and, and evidence comes in, but but it's in the order of 13 and a half billion years old. And anyway, theologians, we got to deal with that. Like, what does it mean? If you want to say that God created all things visible and invisible, well, that's a bigger category than it used to be when the people came up with this creed. They didn't have as much volume and time in mind when they, when they made those statements. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, so we're, maybe we're inclined to just follow their lead and say, of course, yes, everything new that we discover, God has also created that. But yeah. 50 years ago, our known universe was like the size of our galaxy. And now our galaxy is a speck in the known universe. So, so the, the volume and the amount of creation keeps on going up <laughs> mm -hmm. until we reach the horizon of the possible things we could possibly see given the age of the universe. And Anyway, it's I just I just don't want to take it for granted the magnitude of actually confessing this first part. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, did I ruin your no 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 seven day creation? I love faith? it. <laughs> no, no 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 no. I don't really believe in the literal seven days, but uh, I, I do love the doctrine of creation. I think it's a big deal. I think if we lose the doctrine of creation, oh man, I, I really feel we 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 destroy the foundation for Christian theology. I mean, maybe yeah important. no I, I it's it always comes first that's the thing is it comes first in the bible and it comes first in this creed but really the doctrine of creation as peter forsyth and others would say is derivative like what comes first is salvation and being saved and then from there you start to reason to the idea that the the power that saved me has to be such that it created everything that's the sort of the you realize that from an experiential perspective that i'm in touch with something that's so great that it must be master of all things. And that means it created them. That's sort of the logic of the doctrine of creation. And I think that's mm -hmm. lost when we just, when we yeah. talk about first things first in a chronological way, rather than a, in a logical way. Mm -hmm. For me, the beginning of the universe, it's almost outside my experience. It's only because we have instruments to, and, and theories and, and, and evidence. Um, but I'm not gonna figure this out in my backyard. Like, 
I don't need to get a high school education to be saved. <laughs> um, I do need a high school education to know about creation, at least. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a strong op uh, opponent. <laughs> I strongly affirm creation, but I've never really been interested in the whole science and theology connection. It's, I've never really been into it at all, whatsoever. I'm like, yes, creation, yes, let's move on. Yeah, okay. Nobody knows how it happened, but it happened. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, some of us do know how it happened. <laughs> on both sides, that is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Years ago, years ago at my church, I realized that our pastor had hired uh, Answers in Genesis speaker to come and talk to our church. Mm. And I was like, and I, 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 I wasn't sure exactly how to do this because you don't want to leverage your pastor too hard. I mean, this is why they're always burnt out and stuff. But I just sort of sat down with them. I said, this will bring nothing but division and confusion and distraction mm -hmm. to our, to our mm -hmm. church. <laughs> it won't do yeah. us any good whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Let the people who believe this continue and let those who know better continue. <laughs> We don't need to stoke this fire. And yeah. So sorry for stoking it on this podcast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it comes up. It comes up. It's an ongoing debate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're, we're going real slow on our, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, first of all, there's one God, the father almighty maker of all things, visible and invisible. Okay. Now we get to the real innovation of this um, creed, which is talking about the about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has in this creed has become much more than just a man from Nazareth. He's called the Son of God. And you're like, okay, well, what is that? Well, it says he's begotten of the Father. Oh, well, what is that? <laughs> what does it mean to be begotten of the Father? It means mm -hmm. to not be made. So there is a creation, and Jesus Christ, according to the creed, is not part of that creation. Mm -hmm. so there's a line in the middle of all things and on one side is creation and on the other side is jesus and his father that's it according to this creed so far so that's quite something um that's quite something it says uh it says he he is of the essence of the father god of god light of light very god of very god begotten not made and then the key word is consubstantial with the Father, which in Greek, it's like the only Greek word you really need to know in Trinitarian theology, which is homoousios, means mm -hmm. of one substance or consubstantial with the Father. Mm -hmm. So what exactly does that mean? Well, many people have been tortured and persecuted and murdered over the meaning of that word uh, because it is the hinge upon which this whole creed rests. It's we're trying to, They're trying to find a way to say that if you take all things, Jesus and his father go in one category and everything else goes in another category. And that category is being of the substance of the father. Yes and no. <laughs> That's what the creed is saying. So, yeah, also uh, the Arians, right? Which was the other party that was arguing with the, you know, proto-Orthodox people at the time. Right. They use a very similar term. If I'm not mistaken, it had one letter missing, homoousios. It was basically the same except for one vowel, I think. Yeah, it just they, meant similar in substance, right? Yes, yeah. It's homoousios. It's like instead of H-O-M-O, -O, 
it's h-o-m-o-i mm -hmm. that's yeah. <laughs> so of like substance mm -hmm. um and apparently that didn't cut it so they run it to go all the way to of consubstantial or one substance with the father mm -hmm. okay so great like we're fighting over consubstantial of one substance with versus of like substance sorry of like substance with but what is the substance and like what does it matter there's a, it's hard to kind of see that clearly today um if we're, we're wherever people are confessing this creed maybe in more liturgical settings yeah. it, i doubt that it means the same thing to the confessors today as it did to the people who drafted it originally because we don't live mm -hmm. in the world of substances um mm -hmm. and essences that they did like mm -hmm. we we have those words they we use those words but they don't mean the same thing that they used to mm -hmm. so so what are you going to do like if you want to confess this creed do you need to maintain a fourth century worldview is this what we really need to do to succeed in our faith I doubt it, but that's kind of how it feels when people get really intense about this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's important, I mean, for people who are into this, I mean, obviously we're not expecting the average churchgoer to be researching and reading these things, but you know, if you're into theology, this is something important to get into. I think it's important to figure out what the Cappadocian Fathers, Gregory of Nancyensius, and all those guys were trying to hammer out and fighting about, right, Athanasius. I mean, these are really, really pivotal, important debates. And I think we would make a mistake to discount uh, the creed or their ideas because the terminology is outdated. It is, the, the, their worldview is outdated, it is. But I mean, they were using the best terminology that they had to work with. They even made up new terminology, trying to be as innovative as possible. So at the time they were not using, uh, I mean, they were using the terminology of the day, but they were pushing it to new uh, heights, expanding it, deepening it, baptizing uh, the categories of thought of the day, I guess, if you will. And so, yeah, I mean, this is important, especially if you are really into Christianity, the Bible, the gospel, church history. I mean, you, you have to deal with this. It's absolutely foundational. But again, I think it is important to ask the question, how can we more faithfully represent uh, these ideas in the vernacular of the day, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I don't feel bound to these to this creed itself at all because um because if i if i were just to recite it it wouldn't even mean the same thing to me as it meant to them um and and i think that with, with all things in theology especially with an experiential theology approach is we've got to identify like what is it that people are trying to describe in in christian experience and then try to appropriate that thing for ourselves in our own experience and then try to describe it in our own words. So I can't simply translate this creed into the 21st century. Um, I need to articulate. I need to articulate uh, 
the same faith that that inspired this creed for myself if in fact i do want to write a new creed which i'm pretty busy right now but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah great okay let's move on to this next question which i do love it's a, it's a double question it says is the doctrine of the trinity foundational or derivative should we think of it as prolegomena or like first principles or the appendix or the culmination of your systematic theology if you will what should we do what do you think well i won't tell you what i think yet um but the the good examples from the 20, 20th century and i guess the 19th century are um, karl bart and friedrich Schleimacher. so karl bart I'm told has a is very pro-Trinitarian and sort of like puts the Trinity in the first chapter of his project. So he has a big project called the Church Dogmatics, and he he sees fit to begin with the doctrine of the Trinity. So he's going to explain everything he thinks he wants to say about Christianity, about the Christian faith, and he thinks he's gonna and he thinks it's wise to start with the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, that kind of makes sense because we were saying that revelation is often like the first chapter of a systematic theology and the Trinity is about revelation. It's a, the doctrine of the Trinity is about how do we know that what we've received is the truth. And it, the only way is to find the continuity between Jesus and his father. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Nicene Creed is all about. It's saying Jesus and his father are as continuous as we could ever hope or dream because they're the only things on the uncreated half of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Schleimacher who wrote before Bart, he wrote in the, he put it in an appendix and he wrote he, his doctrine of the Trinity or his comments on the Trinity are in an appendix to his dogmatics, his systematic theology. And I don't, have much to say about that in particular because i mean i've read i've read his um dogmatics but uh there it was hard to really understand <laughs> to be honest um but i've just heard like in general if you want to throw a rock at somebody in theology you just say oh oh schleimacher what a dummy he put his trinity in the appendix like that when it's the most important thing so <laughs> i hear this i've heard this many times so it's a good question. Like, where does it belong at the beginning or at the end? Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, well, this, let, let me say a couple of things here. And then I, I want to talk about what this reminds me of. So I'm glad that you picked these two figures, right? So Karl Barth on the one hand feels like he has a lot to say, right? I mean, clearly he did. Never yeah. finished the church dogmatics. It's a massive, massive uh, set of volumes. Yeah, whatever he puts in the last much. chapter just never happens. So. <laughs> so I think Karl Barth knew he had a lot to say and he didn't want to probably bother with having to, okay, should we believe in the Trinity? This is what we should believe in the Trinity because that just takes too much space. He really felt that the Trinity, classically understood as it was, was good enough, a, good enough a vehicle for him to do what he wanted to do, right? Uh I mean, I follow a couple of friends who are really into Schleiermacher. I myself have not read his work, but uh, they they say that 
he takes the opposite of approach, the opposite approach. He ends with the combination of his systematic theology being the doctrine of the Trinity. So he affirms the doctrine of the Trinity, but he ends by culminating or, con or, or coming up with a conclusion to his systematic theology being the doctrine of the Trinity. So this reminds me of the two famous approaches to Christology, right? Christology from above, Christology from below. So here, oh, good, good connection. Yeah. if we're doing the doctrine of the Trinity from above, will be kind of like Karl Barth, more or less. And then the doctrine of the Trinity from below will be Schleiermacher. And so, I mean, theologians are free to choose which way they want to work. Uh, but I think it's going to come down to what you believe will be most uh, cost-effective, I would say. What's going to cost you more to go this route or the other? And what are you most comfortable with? What will enable you to make the claims, to share the ideas that you have most effectively? So either way, I mean, it could go either way, but I mean, I would definitely say that uh, taking Schleiermacher's approach, I would imagine is more difficult for sure, but many would say more biblical, more faithful. It follows the biblical tra trajectory more or less. Yeah, so you made that nice connection between Christology from above and below and the Trinity at the beginning or the end. And uh, I, yeah, I think personally, I'm I'm all for Christology from below. And I'm also for Trinity in the appendix. I don't think it but deserves to be treated as important or as foundational as people treat it. Uh, I think that, uh, and I think that's because my approach is this experiential approach where we don't begin with the beginning of the world at creation. We begin with the beginning of my life. Like I have a life. My beginning is 1984. <laughs> that's when I begin. Uh, and so from that perspective, that's where I start in theology is, is what it means to, to know God in this life that I actually have. And then to work backwards to other things about God that can be known based on my own experience and the experience that I gather and receive or is transmitted, uh, or descriptions of other people's experiences that are transmitted to me. So from that perspective, I really feel like, as for me, um, anything that I write, the Trinity goes at the end, not at the beginning. Yeah. And obviously, we're looking at both camps as terribly as possible. And I mean, yourself, but yeah. well, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, we have... I think players on both sides of the debate who are not uh, doing theology in the most compassionate way. Uh, but I mean, people have the reasons for why they do what they do and for the methods that they employ. Yeah, maybe we should talk about what the doctrine of the Trinity is trying to safeguard for those who hold on to it. Um, Mm -hmm. So we, when we talked about the Nicene Creed um, a moment ago, that actually looks a lot different than the doctrine of the Trinity that people actually have, usually. Because the Nicene Creed just says, it just says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. There's, um, and it really spends most of its time on Jesus. It's like on him being consubstantial with the Father. Mm -hmm. um, but the and it also says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So if you ask somebody 
who just confessed the Nicene tree, Creed and who considers themselves Trinitarian, you say, point me to the one God. They will almost always say, oh, the one God is the Trinity. It's like, well, wait a second. The Nicene Creed doesn't say that. The Nicene Creed says the one God is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the and then we have this one Lord Jesus Christ, of one substance with this Father. So what I'm trying to say is that I would say Orthodox Trinity doctrines and modern doctrines, and, and I think we if you go to the Athanasian Creed, which was not written by Athanasius, for instance, you get something much more symmetrical between the three persons of the Trinity: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And if you were to articulate it in a phrase, it would say something like we believe in one God who or who or what or that consists of three persons and one nature. So there's one, so this consubstantiality between the father and the son of the Nicene Creed becomes like the basic relation between any pair of members of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Any pair of members of the Trinity are consubstantial. They're one substance, uh, but they're also different persons. Uh, and what is a person and what is a nature well that is that is the million dollar question that's that kind of decides exactly what you mean by your doctrine of the trinity um now there's a little bit of asymmetry still and this involves a major division between catholic and eastern orthodox uh, Mm -hmm. the east and the west so how is the father related to the son well they're consubstantial but there's an asymmetry in that the son is generated by the father and how is the Father related to the Spirit? Well, they're consubstantial, but there's an asymmetry in that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and maybe also the Son. <laughs> and, and so if the Spirit proceeds just from the Father, that makes you an Eastern Christian. And if the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son, mm-hmm. that makes you a Western Christian. And this is a thousand-year-old distinction. Mm-hmm. Right? based on two words that nobody actually knows what they mean. Um, Nobody knows what generation and procession actually mean because we're all, okay, I'm going to not be very charitable here. We're all trying to count to three and pretend that it added up to one. And if you can do that all day and it'll never make sense. And the only place to sweep the confusion under the rug is in these nebulous definitions of person's nature, substance, consubstantiality, generation, and procession and reading reading deeply about the doctrine of the Trinity at sort of the ontological level is just a constant circular pattern of redefining and tweaking the definitions of these five or six terms. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's continue with this, but let's address this question since we're already touching on it. Is this doctrine biblical? Well, let me say something here. The answer, of course, is yes and no, right? <laughs> and it depends on who you ask. Right. So it definitely comes from scripture. I mean, people learn about Jesus and the Holy Spirit from the Bible and their experience of the church and so forth. So yes, it does come from the Bible. Uh, the creed borrows quotes or paraphrases, very exact quotations from the Bible. So yes, it is biblical in that way. But ultimately, I would say that if by is it biblical, we mean that this doctrine is actually there in the scriptures, I would say no. 
But I would also say that's not necessarily a problem though. The Arians were the ones that I think had the stronger biblical argument for, for their take on the relationship uh, of Jesus to the Father. I really do believe that they probably had the, the stronger biblical argument. But again, to me, it, it doesn't trouble me because I don't look at the Bible as precisely and exactly a perfect source of information. And I don't think that's the way we need to do theology anyway. So yeah, I'm okay saying, yeah, the Arians have a stronger argument. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right, ultimately, theologically speaking. Likewise, I'm okay with saying that, uh, yeah, the Trinitarians have the weaker argument. But if you look at the, at the logic of the theology here, what they're saying makes more sense in some way. So either way, it's, it's a yes and no for me. What do you say? Yeah, something like that, too. Um, there's, there's essentially three phases in history of Trinitarian theology. So to use a famous phrase, like there was a time when the doctrine of the Trinity was not, there was a time before the doctrine of the Trinity. And that time was basically the first two or 300 years of the Christian, of the Christian faith. Yeah. At that time, people had, had, had like a number of views and they, and they ended up arguing with each other and, and so on, which led to the creeds, which led to like a, a, a clarification of this doctrine. And the, the phrase consubstantial was a real turning point. Um, mm -hmm. But then we have what's like about a thousand years of, cons of a fairly consistent belief about the Trinity, or at least confession about the Trinity. The creeds remain fairly stable for about a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And then the Reformation happens at around 1500 and something um okay there's a at the reformation there's a, a a shift back to the bible the authority for doctrine is not necessarily what is traditional or what is um mm -hmm. part of the church doctrine it becomes the bible becomes the source of authority and that's a very decentralized authority because it's really everybody's interpretation of the bible Mm -hmm. Then, so for the past 500 years, we've been in this third phase of the doctrine of the Trinity where, where everybody has asked themselves, is this biblical? Yeah. And they have tried to tweak it until it felt biblical enough for their own purposes. <laughs> and so now we have a, a whole variety of doctrines of the Trinity out there. If you want to be nitpicky about it, which I, which I do. <laughs> we've got Karl Barth's doctrine of the Trinity. We've got Schleiermacher's doctrine of the Trinity. We've got, we've got Kierkegaard's like Trinitarian um, musings. Um, mm -hmm. Pick a big theologian. Like got Moltmann's doctrine of the Trinity. It's a notable mm -hmm. one in mm -hmm. particular. Mm -hmm. Pick a major theologian, major reformed theologian. They will have their own doctrine of the Trinity. It's sort of like build your own uh, for the sake of your own system and perspective. It's quite a remarkable thing. And it's, and it's because the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity just is not the straight reading of the Bible. And so people who put the Bible first are forced to modify Orthodox Trinitarianism yeah. to something that feels right in their own system. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
So, I mean, there was a time where, I mean, just being a low church Protestant, I mean, the Bible was everything to me. I still love the Bible, don't get me wrong. But I felt, I would say I would feel, I would feel stressed. <laughs> I would literally feel stressed if I felt like my beliefs didn't perfectly align to what the Bible teaches, or if I confess or believe something that, you know, it's not quite 100% scriptural or whatnot. Uh, I definitely don't have any such fears any longer. I'm not really stressed about it. If <laughs> if I end up a tritheist or something, I'll be like, well, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, I did my bad. It's confusing. Well, think of it this way. Like, if you're, if you're a Rudolph... Um, sorry, if you're if you end up being like, imagine yourself in Moltmann's shoes, okay? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And everyone's like, your your Trinity is a tritheism. Uh-huh. Like, there's nothing you can do except for saying, if tritheism is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> that's that's the way you that's the way you proceed. Like you, we do our best uh-huh. to try to understand mm-hmm. theology, I guess. Um, yeah. And if other people think it's not good enough that's like that's to be expected in in many ways yeah um but another way to look at it too is from a historical critical perspective when i ask is it biblical another way to look at that is i when mm-hmm. I, is to say was the apostle paul a trinitarian mm-hmm. the answer is no paul was... does not know of the phrase consubstantiality of the <laughs> son with the father that, and that's kind of like the bare minimum to get into this symmetric all three, three mm-hmm. persons, one substance uh, model. Yeah. Uh, Paul, if you ask him who is the one God, he will say, "Oh, the Father of Jesus Christ," and that's in fact what he does say many times in in the New Testament. Um. That said, Paul knows Jesus, his Father, and the Spirit better than many modern people do. Mm-hmm. Better than most modern people do. Yeah. So Paul is living um, in relation to the the Trinity, where by Trinity I just mean the three major characters of the Trinity. Yeah, and and what he has to say about them is much more important than um, than his lack of creedal terminology and and conceptualization. And we can't. We just can't understand Paul if we force that on him. And we say, Paul, since I only trust Orthodox people, and I want to trust Paul, I got to make sure that Paul's Orthodox. Well, guess what? It's never going to happen. He's not Orthodox. He's Paul. We start with him, and then we go from there. We don't. Um, we don't read back modern mm-hmm. or even patristic theories of of God onto paul's perspective we need paul to just be himself and and then ask what are we supposed to do now that's the real question yeah a lot of people say that you know well he's not trinitarian but he's proto-trinitarian <laughs> and you know i'm very sympathetic towards that because i mean i agree with what you said that he would definitely said that you know the father is god of course yeah but i mean when you look for example the Book of Romans, Galatians, etc. You do see that the way God works always involves Jesus and always involves the Spirit. So, dynamically speaking, you could claim, well, He is sort of Trinitarian, but again, He's not ever claiming to exactly define the being and the essence of God. 
he's just talking about how God works. And this is how he experiences God working in his ministry through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And the church uh, experienced the same largely through him. And then they had to kind of figure out what are we going to do with this? So let's talk, let's think about this this way. Let's keep Paul in mind because he's one of our favorites. Uh, let's be real. He is our favorite. So <laughs> the greatest. The So the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, it, it, what, what are the errors that it's trying to push aside? So it's first of all, it's trying to secure monotheism. So Christians seem to worship Jesus and also seem to worship Jesus as father. And so you might say, oh, that's not monotheism. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is a, try a way to say, yes, it is. It is monotheism. Okay, what else is it? It's not, um, yeah, so they're trying to avoid the tritheistic threat. That's what I'm saying. So it is monotheism. That's what the Trinity is trying to prove somehow. Mm -hmm. It's also, uh, it's also a way to avoid modalism, which is the idea that Jesus is his own father, that, that Jesus and his father are just like Superman and Clark Kent. They're just a costume. Mm-hmm. And so it's really one character. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity tries to safeguard against that. And this is a big problem. This is really important to me, actually, because a great deal of the Christian faith is built on imitating Christ and imitating Christ as, as Jesus of Nazareth tries to obey his father. <laughs> so there's a relationship between the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and the God of Israel. And that relationship doesn't make any sense. And there's no way to imitate it if it's just a relationship of someone to themselves. So I think that's, I think that's actually quite important. So the doctrine of the Trinity is trying to avoid collapsing Jesus into his father. So they're just one person. And then the last thing it's trying to, it's trying to um, protect against is subordinationism. This idea that Jesus is much less than his father in some sense, uh, and this is kind of that consubstantial of one substance versus of like substance debate that we mentioned with the creed. It's trying to make sure that Jesus is exalted to the maximum level um, and, and perhaps not even overshadowed by his father. Okay, so go to if we go to Paul and we ask him these questions and we say, hey, Paul, you're not a monotheist. You're worshiping Jesus. What do you think his answer would be? Hmm. Good question. Let me think. <laughs> I think he would say something like, God told us to worship Jesus. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's like, what do you think Jesus being exalted even means? <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, like he would say, he's the image of the invisible God. We're supposed to like, it's actually a faithful image this time. All the other times it was idols because they weren't actually a good image. This is a real image. <laughs> mm -hmm. you, so all of your kind of monotheistic sensibilities of oh you better not trust anything except for the actual god it's like it is trusting god to trust jesus because that's what god told them to do mm. so there's yeah. no division of there's no so so we like we're worried about idol worship this is what monotheism is really about it's about idol worship avoiding it that is it's like mm -hmm. well new rule worshiping jesus is mandatory and not idol worship. So that's why Paul worships Jesus. <laughs> and what about the Holy Spirit? What would he say? Uh, I think we'll get what, to that. What is this Holy Spirit? 
Paul, what is this Holy Spirit? Yeah, so that's the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of Jesus. Um, and I'm going to get to that at the end, I guess. Uh, I think that the key to a practical approach to the Trinity is to realize that Paul makes the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus one and the same Spirit. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think, and I'll, I'll get to, I'll get, I'll double back to that. Yeah. Um, but as far as the modalism threat, like there's no risk of Paul being a modalist because he clearly distinguishes Jesus and his father, except in the sense that he calls the, the spirit that they send becomes the spirit of both of them, becomes the spirit of, the, of God and the spirit of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's, that's as close as he gets to collapsing the two. Yeah. And it's remarkable, but it doesn't in any way um, take away the obedience of Christ to his father. Okay, last of all, what about what is what about subordinationism? Like Paul, I don't think you're exalting Jesus enough. Because you said in like what is it? 1 Corinthians 15 or something. Um Yeah, where he talks about how Jesus yeah. is going to hand over the kingdom to the Father. Yeah. Like if that's not subordinationism, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. um we have to like whatever our equality of the father and the son involves it's got to make space for that insight on paul's part so so i don't have a lot of sympathy for maximal equality between jesus and his father in modern theology because we got to get in there that insight of paul that the whole work of jesus is to serve his father um mm -hmm. And our, yeah. and our work is to basically do the same thing by the power that he provides us. So, so, so I, we can't, we can't, yeah, our, our radical sort of egalitarian sensibilities uh, in certain circles, I think mm -hmm. I, they actually can cloud our judgment here when we're looking back at Paul's approach to Jesus and his father. And I don't think Paul's wrong. Um, I don't think he's wrong at all. And the Creed of 325 doesn't do anything to make Jesus and his father literally mm -hmm. the same. There's they're of one substance, which is which which makes them sound very similar. Mm -hmm. But um, but he's still the son of God. Mm -hmm. He's still from the Father. Um, yeah. so there's this asymmetry built into 325 that mm -hmm. that we that, yeah. that's still there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love Molman. I'm sympathetic to his take on the Trinity. There's a lot of good in it, but yeah, I agree with you that, I mean, the social trinity is just, it doesn't fit the data as best as other understandings. <laughs> I think that Moltmann, so for anyone who's not familiar, for him, the Father, Son, and Spirit are very symmetrical. We're kind of looking at a triangle with no particular top corner. Um, but he very but his but he maximizes the relationship between the persons so and so Moltmann would be accused of tritheism of three gods because for him the persons are very are distinct enough to actually have interpersonal relation and of love and, and obedience and, and and mutual support and submission yeah with with bart if i understand what i've heard about him because i'm never going to be a bart scholar <laughs> so um it's it's he he collapses them much more closely that it's it's hard to tell it's hard to identify more than one self in the in bart's godhead um mm -hmm. 
he's very concerned about tritheism. And I think he's concerned about it in a way that Paul is not concerned about it. And Paul has good reasons to not be concerned because he's in touch with the triune God at a very practical level. So, mm -hmm. Great. Excellent. All right. What so else? you had, you, you were wondering, um, maybe you, what do you think about this other question we had for each other, which was how should people who are Orthodox and people who are unorthodox treat one another? Maybe I could learn something from your answers. <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard, but I mean, we, we should not be fundamentalists in our beliefs and in our actions towards one another. I mean, obviously, we're at a point where we're not harming each other anymore. I mean, besides maybe an occasional Twitter dunk here or there, I mean, nobody's burning anybody, nobody's drowning anybody. Thank God, right? That's good. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's really important, for example, for Trinitarians to let go of their fears and to just really study the other option. I mean, why are there so many people who are Unitarian? Really look into it, study their best works, read them charitably. Likewise, I think Unitarians should do the same thing. Like they should stop being afraid of being contaminated by these pagans who believe in three gods. <laughs> and they should study some of the best books that argue for the Trinity, see what the issues are at hand, and learn from one another. They can still disagree, but ultimately, I think we have to just realize that God is God, and God is able to reveal himself both Trinitarians and Unitarians, in spite of both of their theologies, because both of their theologies are probably inadequate, maybe one more so than the other, but they're both uh, inadequate, ultimately. I mean, God exceeds our theological refinement, and God is no respecter of persons, I mean. He reveals himself to people. He works in people's lives. And he's not going to rule you out if you have some weird Trinitarian ideas or if you are just too much into uh, a oneness idea of God, a Unitarian view. So I think that's important. Yeah. Good. Uh, what, instead of blending this into how does it apply, we should just briefly discuss a like a current debate that's happening um, where people have connected the question of the role of women in church and family life and the doctrine of the Trinity together and taken a doctrine of the Trinity and they tried to apply it at the social level. And it's become quite nasty, actually. Um, so, so first of all, First of all, let's talk about the social half of it. So there is a question in the minds of certain people, mostly conservative, as to whether or not women should be permitted to teach or lead and whether in marriage women, whether in a Christian marriage, it's right and good for, for the wife to generally submit to the husband in, their, in her judgment, in their judgment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's a conservative camp that says yes. And in fact, they even have like a foundation and institution CMBW, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and, or whatever. They write books about this and have conferences and, and so on. 
Um, and they have a they have, they have a strong grip on 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 many many Christians actually in North America at least. Okay, well, the old-fashioned reason for this was just that was usually along the lines that women were just not capable of filling certain roles in the church. Well, that's not going to fly anymore. So they have a new reason in the past 50 to 60 years. Mm -hmm. And the new reason is that it's possible to be equal, but different. So they want to argue that having different roles for men and women in church and family life is possible without any sort of ontological inferiority. So those who submit and listen are ontologically equal to those who um, who lead and, and speak basically. Okay, and how do they, and, and in order to support this idea, they've gone to the doctrine of the Trinity and they've said, well, look, in the doctrine of the Trinity, Jesus submits to his father. And everybody like agrees that this is true in the life of Jesus, that he submits to his father. But they say, and because the ontological Trinity is the economic Trinity and so on, Jesus is eternally submitted to his father. And that's why it makes sense to have submission with ontological equality. So take that, everybody. <laughs> okay, so then the people on the egalitarian camp who who want to say that this is wrong, and I think that they're right, that um, that this logic of gender inequality and gender roles is wrong. I think that that is quite wrong. Um, they say, they say you are trying so hard to justify your gender roles that you're committing heresy by by making eternal um, subordination of the Son to the Father part of the Trinity. That's not orthodox. It doesn't make the father and son equal and so on. So the, the egalitarians are accusing the complementarians of bad Trinitarian theology or self-serving Trinitarian theology. So, so this is, this is where I am. Like um, I'm, I'm very comfortable with something that looks close to what I understand Paul to have believed that Jesus obeys his father and that's basically all we need to know about jesus and his father <laughs> we don't need to get behind jesus and his father to ontological equivalence or whatever i'm happy with paul's eschatology that the son will hand all things over to the father mm -hmm. like i don't i don't need anything more than that so so when somebody says oh your trinitarian theology is subordinationist i just don't care like i'm okay with that i'm okay with that um on the other hand i want to strongly reject any inhibition towards women serving in the church and any um any doctrine or or culture that would say that women need to always follow the lead of the man of the house whether it's their father or the or the husband or something mm -hmm. i don't i think that that's wrong uh, for many reasons and but but i but, the, but I'm just, they're just not, they're just not the same issue at all. The Trinity and the social issue are very different. And it, it's, I think it's wrong to connect them together. And both sides of this debate are throwing spears at the other because they've raised the temperature by bringing the doctrine of the Trinity into the mix. The one, the one example of somebody who, who kind of sees it the way I do is um, Craig Keener, who's a New Testament biblical scholar who, who was very, mm -hmm 
egalitarian at, on the human level between men and women, but also says, well, the biblical case is for a subordinationist theology. Mm -hmm. And if we want to go beyond that, it's extra biblical. And as you said, I'm okay with going extra biblical if we have a good reason for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about how the Trinity deals with uh, revelation, right? And you could also say we have redemption, right? Uh, I think if we're using the Trinity for anything other than revelation and redemption, we're misusing the doctrine because that's what it's about. <laughs> so <laughs> gender roles, marriage roles, church roles, that has nothing to do with the Trinity. Uh, it's very clear. And I mean, it's very clear if you study the New Testament that women have every right to function as any man who is a believer in the church. They both have gifts and they can exercise them. And for Paul, this is a non-issue, really. So I think that's what we should use. I mean, if you really want to ground everything on the Bible, well, look to the new creation that is beginning to be experienced by the church in the New Testament and look to that. I don't think we really need to figure out what Moses was saying or what was happening with the patriarchs or much less the Trinity. I mean, I get that we're creating the image of God, but I think we're really misusing the doctrine if we're trying to figure out, you know, how to have appropriate hierarchies and families and so forth. Yeah, I think we should just stick to talk about revelation and redemption through the Trinity. That's fine. But beyond those two, we're probably, um, we're probably not, not doing a good thing using the doctrine of the Trinity to develop other theological ideas. Yes, I think that's good. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I like it in the appendix better, because if you put it at the beginning, it just becomes the hammer and everything else becomes the nail. And you just hit every nail that you can find with it. And, and then it can get into a lot of trouble that way. So. Yeah. Great. Okay, well, let's close out this episode and let's talk about why, why does the doctrine of the Trinity still matter? And maybe what is a simpler, more genuine, more faithful way to talk about the Trinity today without quoting or paraphrasing the original creeds? So I wrote my MA thesis. Uh, it was entitled... Cognitive Idolatry and the Trinity in the philosophy of Paul K. Moser. And so I was interested in getting to an experiential account of the Trinity rather than sort of a, like an intellectual account of it. Mm. And I, so I thought long and hard uh, thought to get past the intellectual version. So <laughs> I worked I worked pretty hard to, to simplify things for myself. And when I came up with something like this, um, this simple, if I were to have a simple formula for the doctrine of the Trinity today, for me, it goes like this. It's this, that the spirit of God is the spirit of Jesus. And so to explain that a little bit, um, in our Christian experience, we read about Jesus and we have access to the stories about him. And we see a man driven by the spirit of God. And so we see the spirit of God in the New Testament um, as 
as that which conveyed the personal presence and power of his father to Jesus. But in our own life, we experience the spirit of Jesus. Um, we, we have the spirit that's available to us that conveys to us the presence and power of Jesus. Jesus becomes a living personality and a living challenge and a living threat <laughs> and a living um, source of conviction and, and love for one another um, in the lives of believers today. And, and so we have these two things alongside each other and we see that, guess what? The spirit of God and the spirit of Jesus turn out to be the same thing doesn't mean that Jesus and his father are the same thing, but it means that the spirit, um, the same spirit by which we might encounter God is now the spirit by which we encounter Jesus. So there's no chance for us to go behind Jesus directly to God. God, and I'm using the word God and father interchangeably here. Uh, call it mm -hmm. Unitarian if you, if you must, <laughs> but there's no going directly to God without going through the spirit of Jesus. That's the reality for us today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean we have to be cognizant of Jesus. Uh, we may, we, we doesn't mean we have had to hear the stories. Like we can have a, a sort of a, a more universal interpretation of this, but the alien power at work in the world that's convicting people of sin and empowering them to love one another. And, um, and causing them to, to march in the opposite directions of the systems and powers that they live amongst. This is the spirit of Jesus, and it's the same spirit of God. And um, and I don't think there's any contradiction or really intellectual problem there at all. I mean, it makes sense that the messenger, that God has given God's messenger to Jesus now, because Jesus uh, is totally consistent with God the character of God and the character of Jesus are one and the same. Sounds kind of like homoi usius a little bit, but, <laughs> mm -hmm. but one, one analogy that I, that I had years ago that I found helpful was in the old Testament, Moses mm -hmm. uh, encounters God and he doesn't want to go see Pharaoh. Yeah. And what does God's, what does God say to Moses it says, okay, your brother Aaron will be your messenger to Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And you will be um, God to Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what's happening to us: is that the idea is that God has a God, in that story. We have this sort of the, the mechanics here. God exalted Moses so that Pharaoh could not access God without going through Moses. Mm -hmm. and that's that's what the exaltation of Jesus Christ means to us today. Is that we don't get to access God without going through Jesus. Mm -hmm. We don't get to say, oh, just show us the Father. Get out of the way. We want to see God. Mm. God has seen fit to say, if anything you need to say to me, you can say to Jesus. <laughs> and at the same time, that doesn't hold us at a distance at all. That is the revelation of God's character. Because Jesus is a faithful representation of the character and purposes of God in the world. Yeah, excellent. I love it. We should tweet this. The doctrine of the Trinity is an explanation of an experience of the Spirit of God as the Spirit of Jesus. Excellent. One sentence. One yeah, sentence. Take that, Creed. Uh, <laughs> so I, well, what I think is that if you're going to theorize about the Trinity, like whatever you come up with and however complicated it is, if it doesn't explain 
the experience of God as the spirit of Jesus, which is what Paul does. He starts blending those two together. Mm-hmm. And I'm not interested. Like, that's what I really want mm-hmm. the doctrine of the Trinity to do for me. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I'm, that's what I wanted to achieve. And I see it as an appendix because it's, it's, we got to talk about that thing before we even try to, ex- before we try to theorize about it. So, so let's focus on that experience first and the, and the complicated explanation later. That's perfect. I like uh, Irenaeus. This is my favorite uh, way to think yes. of or conceptualize the Trinity, right? Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the hands of the Father. Of course, if you think it literally makes no sense, but to me, hey, it works for me. Experientially speaking, that's the way I experience God. He works through Jesus and he works through the Spirit. And I love it. It's good enough for me. Yeah. And it's early. Um, that's in that first phase of the Trinity doctrine. Like in a thousand years, people would say that, I mean, I would, they'll probably give Aaron a some respect, but in a thousand years, they would have just called that subordinationism. So. Mm-hmm. Great. All right, Ben. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed conversating about the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm sure we will have uh, other episodes where maybe this comes up and we'll see what happens. Thanks. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.